Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 162nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Tim Bickmore. Tim is the co-founder and the director of financial planning for LBW Wealth Management, an independent RAA based in Madison, Wisconsin, that oversees more than 50 million of assets under management for 230 client households. What's unique about Tim, though, is that despite having rapid success in groping their advisory firm in over $50 million in just the past five years, they're concerned that what's gotten them here won't get them there to the growth that comes next, particularly as the firm is focusing more and more on offering comprehensive financial planning advice and is trying to manage the additional time and productivity limitations that come with a deeper financial planning process, leading Tim to not only share his story of business success in getting to this point, but also to ask some advice about what they should be doing to grow profitably from here. In this episode, we talk in depth about the evolution of Tim's advisory firm, from their initial five years of building around the AUM model, their decision to shift to a blended model with a base monthly subscription fee for financial planning advice alongside a reduced AUM fee for investment management, the way their new business model is helping them both to ensure profitability for new clients, regardless of their assets, while also opening up new markets for non-AUM young professionals and business owners in their 20s, 30s, and 40s and the real-world challenges in how to position a change in your fees and focus of the firm with all your existing clients who may now face a significant fee increase. We also talk in depth about LBW's financial planning process for younger clientele in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, the reason the firm left Money Guide Pro for eMoney Advisor as a better platform to give advice to next-generation clients, the increasingly cash flow-based approach that LBW has taken, focusing not on long-term cash flow planning and retirement projections, but categorizing and reflecting on the client's short-term household cash flow instead, how Tim is implementing a more agile financial planning approach in his advisory firm, and how the reality is that even a highly efficient and profitable advisory firm will still find it less profitable to scale financial planning for the second or third hundred clients than it is for the first 100. And be certain to listen to the end, where Tim shares the unexpected surprises that hit him as a business owner running a financial planning business. How even though they were challenging, he still believes that they were necessary to go through as part of the learning process to build a business. And why in the end, it's all been worthwhile to him, not simply because he's been able to grow a valuable business, but because in the end, financial planning itself is first and foremost psychologically rewarding to us in the opportunity to meet new people from so many different walks of life and help them. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Tim Bickmore. Welcome, Tim Bickmore, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate having me on. I'm I'm really excited about today's episode and and what I think may be a, a little bit of a different kind of conversation and discussion that that we've had in the past on the podcast. There, there's a famous saying out there in the business world, uh, what got you here won't get you there. It comes from like leadership 
uh, executive coach guru Marshall Goldsmith, uh, who I think actually wrote a book by that name as well. But it, it's sort of this idea and recognition that in in our businesses, we often start successful businesses because we like we find a thing, we do it pretty well. Someone is willing to pay us to do it. We, we start making a business around it. It, it. it becomes successful. We hit some good milestones. And then for a lot of people, at some point, you want to like grow to the next level, do the next thing, move forward to the next stage. And what you discover is what got you here won't get you there. So like the, the thing that was totally working in your business to grow it as far as you've gotten suddenly won't work in the same way to grow it to the next stage. Or you want to make a bit of a shift and a pivot in the business, but you can't do things the new way because you're still kind of stuck on things the old way. And then it gets really hard sometimes to reinvent the business. and. You know, Tim, I know you had reached out because you were actually at one of these transition moments, have you know, spent the past five years building a, a $50 million firm, which is a, a great base, more growth actually than a lot of advisors get to in 10 and 20 years, but want to now grow to the next level and are hitting some of those challenge points of how do I get from here to there because what I was doing in the past isn't necessarily moving me forward. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm excited to have this discussion today around, I mean, I think to me, it's kind of business transformations, like how you how you navigate getting your business to the next level when you've been really successful in getting it to where it is today, but you want to do more, but the, the more suddenly looks different than what you've been doing. And just figuring out how to do that transition, figuring out how to do that transformation can be can be really challenging sometimes. Yeah, I mean it can it's it can be extremely challenging and I think you probably articulated how I felt for the last 5 years extremely well. I mean I've I've simplified that that analogy down to, you know, I tell people, you know, you you get really excited to start a business, you're really excited, you think, you know, oh, this is going to happen and then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you say, "Oh man, I started a business. Now what do I do?" And that's kind of that transition point of saying we've we've built it to this to this point, but you are 100% correct it's now time to transition and evolve. And I think we've done a pretty good job evolving in general, but this has been probably the biggest pivot point we've had in our early, our early history of the firm. So it's been, a, it's been a ride so far. It's been a ride. Yeah. I, I'm, I know Alan, Alan Moore likes to, uh, to call this the, the oh crap moment. You know, like we, you know, we, we go out like to, to start an advisory business it's like full of hope it's going to work, a lot of nervousness about whether it's going to work. I mean, uh, starting a business is very anxiety provoking for pretty much anyone. But then there's this subset of us where like, you're trying to build it, you're trying to get through that initial brutally tough stage. You get through it. There's sort of this elated like woo moment. And, and, then, and then you pick up and look and like, Oh, I actually have a lot of clients now. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of work and things to do, and like, I might need a person. Like, gotta hire and train and manage a person, and like, all this other stuff is happening. And 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 there's sort of this oh, oh crap moment. Like, what? Oh wait, what have I done to myself? Like, I'm I can't get off this roller coaster now. It's and it's going. Like, yeah, and the it's going fast. Away. Yeah, it's going fast. Yeah, that's that's exactly the old crap moment is probably yeah where we where we hit probably in 2019 and and the, and it's interesting. I mean, the old crap moment can be very scary, but at the same time, even for where we're going, I feel going forward in 2020, it's also very liberating to really kind of look at yourself and kind of self actualize as a firm and say where are we really at and what are we really trying to achieve? Because I think. 
you know, we, t- we, we handle a lot of business owners ourselves and we talk a lot about just kind of business ideology and business thought process and a lens to focus on. And I think when you first start, you know, we, obviously in behavioral economics, they talk a lot about, you know, people are not rational, people are irrational. I think you have to be an irrational person to start a business and you have to be naive and you have to be altruistic in order to get, take the leap off the cliff. I forget where I'd read it. Some like really amusing quote, I was slightly butchered, but something the effect of you see very, very few people with MBAs who are entrepreneurs who start their own businesses, because if you had learned that effectively, how to analyze a business, you would never start one. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense from a rational perspective. It just doesn't. And it's hard. It's difficult. And it's not just the quantitative, it's the qualitative and, and understanding that. And I think you have to be a little naive or irrational to actually make that jump. But once you make the jump and you go through those processes, then you do hit that, oh crap moment. Because it's, I mean, it's almost like, you know, comparing it to a child, right? You learn how to first, you know, roll over, then crawl, then walk, then run. And, you know, I think that it's the same kind of evolution as a business is when we first started the company, I mean, it was, hey, we want to help anybody because we have a deep, I mean, in this firm, in our culture, we have a deep feeling of saying this industry needs to change. It needs to change for the better. It needs to be seen as a profession. And, you know, everybody does need financial literacy to a degree. And that's really how we started the company is, hey, if you want to talk about finance, come in and talk to us. We have an expertise in it. It doesn't matter if we're going to work with you or not. But we want to push this idea forward of saying everyone should have access to some of this this knowledge and education. And then as we've grown and brought on clients and that's changed and evolved, we've started to realize that, hey, we really do need to, in order to be a successful business, right, we really do need to focus in on the clientele and the niche that we want to move forward with. Because if we can't, unfortunately, help everyone, that is too altruistic. It's way too big. It's too ideological. It it just can't happen in order for us to be a successful business. And that's the other thing that I think we've learned over time. And we talk about with our clients is when you're a business owner, you can be really good at your trade, but then you also have to understand that your business is going to probably conflict with that trade at some point, right? It's just the nature of the beast. You know, that phenomenon particular of, of kind of the the transition in an advisory business when you realize or decide or just get constrained by the business of you can't help everyone anymore is, is a, I think, actually one of the biggest blocking points in and of itself for a lot of firms that, that ultimately prevents them from, from growing and moving forward is just, I mean, it's just kind of a business mathematical reality like you 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 can't help everyone like yeah uh, you know there's economics to this of just what it takes to get paid for your for your time and labor there's just at some point a sheer capacity issue you can only help so many people your business can only help so many people you know you can hire more staff to help more people but if the people you're helping don't generate any revenue for you or don't generate enough revenue you can't pay that staff and you can't bring them on board and a lot of firms i find hit hit blocking points that's usually something to the effect of I I started my business helping anyone and everybody I could because you know I, I had the time and I needed the revenue so when you're at zero any any client with anything is better than nothing I started my business to help anyone and everyone and 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 I can't let them go now or like air quotes I can't let them go now like because you you can it may or may not be a painful awkward transition but or it may be totally fine but like we tell ourselves 
I can't let them go. And, and I think that becomes one of the first versions of what got you here won't get you there. Or like, you know, I get it. You got your business off the ground from revenue zero because you took anyone that could do anything with you and then would pay you anything and took them on as a client because that's what in the aggregate got enough revenue going to get there. But then when you want to grow the next stage and it means hiring staff and adding more people and expanding and doing the things that you have to do to grow beyond that point, you suddenly discover like, well, I'll have enough money to to hire staff to do more. It's like, well, you know why that is. Because <laughs> you've only got so many seats on the bus of uh, how many clients you can take on and your client bus is all full of people who aren't paying you enough to let you grow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is a hard reality. It's it's a hard reality to come, to face because, and I think it's even more difficult when it comes to our industry. And I think it's difficult because we are service oriented. You know, we sit down with clients and we feel we do an extremely good job when it comes to client service and getting to know our clients on a personal level. So, you know, how do you let someone who's come in and they now feel like your grandma or, you know, even a family member or a really good friend saying, Hey, thanks for helping me out. But now I got to change, you know, I'm not getting paid enough. And that, that I think is sometimes underrepresented on how the difficulty of that from a qualitative perspective, but it, it is a reality. That's the hard part too, is it's not that it's not real. And I think there's, I think there's a piece that goes with it as well as, as you said at the beginning, you, you, you started your firm because you want to see the industry change and you want to see things done differently. And and just the sad reality is for any advisor that's been in the business for a number of years, like you have seen the bad, you know, you've seen the clients that come in from someone else who just clearly took advantage of them. It's not even a gray area. It just was clearly wrong. Unfortunately, I do think the reality is those folks tend to get preyed upon a little bit more at the lower end of the the income and wealth spectrum, because there are fewer others that are in that space that are that are doing good work. And so I think there's there's sometimes this feeling that I that I I get as well of like, I want to help this person, I can't help this person, but good lord, I can't just throw them to the wolves. <laughs> I can't send them back out there into the wilderness without anything to defend themselves. Like this is not better. Uh, at some point just I I feel like a moral obligation not to send them back out there. But you know, then we get, I think, locked into our binary choices, like, because, uh, because there are other advisors out there who are bad, I must take all of them myself. And like, that's not your only choice, right? There, there are, there's a third option. The third option is for every client who isn't a good fit for you, there was some other advisor out there where that is their ideal client, that is their dream client, or heck, just there where your business was two, three, five, ten years ago. And, they would absolutely love that client. And you know what? They might not service that client for 10 or 20 years, but they can service them for the next few. It's a good client for them. And then we'll find them a home. And we And we did that. When we first started our business, we actually went out to actively look for other registered investment advisors in our area and just elsewhere to find where we could send clients. Because we knew from the beginning to a degree that not every client was going to be the right fit for us. But we also didn't want to throw them to the wolves. Because we knew it's like, if, if they don't come here, we need to at least educate them and say, hey, maybe this would be a good fit or look at this firm. And these are the reasons why you should look at them. But that's also been difficult as well as because when we have approached others, sometimes we get this 
this kickback of saying, oh, we're going to compete. It's like, we're not competing. I mean, my network being from Salt Lake City, Utah and living in Madison, there's not a lot of advisors in the Madison area that have that network, right? I, I, I have that because I grew up there. So it's, it, you know, because of technology and different things, we can go approach other markets that we're not even, lo- our locale is not even there. So it's this weird dynamic. And I think a lot of people think of it as competition. We've just never viewed it because again, we're trying to look at it from a whole saying, we just want people to go somewhere where we feel comfortable them going. And we recognize that when we can get a client, we'll service them. And if it's our responsibility to keep them through our service, and if they decide to leave because there's something better, then we need to do something different. So it's a little bit different mindset, but we've definitely tried to actively push that forward of saying, okay, where can I send somebody? And that's been a little bit more difficult than I think we anticipated from the beginning. So, so talk to us about just the business as it exists today. Can you paint a little bit of a picture for us of uh, size of firm and, and clients and staff and, and what this looks like as it stands today? Sure. So we opened our doors in October of 2015 and we started with the three of us. So it's myself and two business partners. We each own uh, the firm a third, a third, a third. Technically, Nathaniel has the point, you know, point three four percent. All right, because someone has to get the last point zero one when we do even thirds. All right. <laughs> yep. So he got that. But right now, as it sits, we're at about two hundred and thirty uh, clients or households, and that is a about 50 million. I, mean, I think we're just a little over 51 million currently with the where you know where the market is as of the day. We're currently I think in 19 or 20 states. The predominantly our client base sits in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, our fastest growing growing cities are California as well as San or uh, Los Angeles in California as well as San Francisco in California. Our client base is really strong probably from the ages anywhere from 30 to 45 to 50, but we have client, you know, our client age range is anywhere from 18 to, I think, you know, 80s, late 80s. So we do have a, a big range. And then the AUM size ranges is from there, same with income size. So we, we have a pretty broad spectrum of different clientele. Where we're moving towards is, you know, in our industry, they're, they're you know, coined Henry's. So high earners, not rich yet is, is really kind of where we're leaning towards. Again, going back to that demographic of really 30 to 35 to 45 to 50 years old. With, in, with driving an income anywhere from 500000 and above as a household. So that's really kind of where we're focusing. And then our other focus is we've kind of built a niche with business owners or entrepreneurs. With, and that, real, that base has really been you know, more locally. So that's more in the Wisconsin area than more um, on a national scale. But that also is, is something that we feel like we can do a good job with. And a lot of that is due to our business partner, Nathaniel. He does a lot of work on the business consulting looking at client books, helping them with capital allocation and different things. So we've definitely, where we are today is not where we started, uh, you know, back in 2015. And from a business model end, at least it exists today, like you would, you would kind of frame this as 230 households, just over 50 million in AUM. Are you predominantly on the AUM model today? Is that the, the driver of the business revenue kind of over the past five years to where you are now? We were completely on the AUM model up till December 16th of 2019. Okay. So we have just changed. We have just changed. We just made that shift. And now we have moved towards like a subscription fee model for our financial planning services, as well as our business consulting services. 
And then we've taken our AUM fee and we've decreased it significantly. So our old AUM structure, we were our, you know, the highest fee that we were going to get paid was 1.25%. We had a tiered structure from there, depending on the assets that we managed. And that was true assets that we managed. This wasn't assets under advisement. And that was the model that we were on. But obviously, kind of as I, as I alluded to, we're moving from a client demographic. And what we found was that a lot of these clients really fit us well, but under the current structure, we just weren't getting compensated in order to grow and continue to service that type of client. So we did have to fundamentally make a shift and we made that shift to the subscription fee where now we're getting paid on a monthly basis for our planning as well as business consulting if that service is going to be utilized for us. And then our AUM fee starts at 0.75% depending on how we're going to manage the assets and can go as low as 0.25%. So we've really shifted the dynamic of where our economic engine is. So it's not any more of that we need to gather big assets. It's more of we need to gather the right clientele that can pay us really our planning fee. Okay. And and what is that typical monthly subscription planning fee look like? Like what did you set that price point at? So our our beginning price point is $250 a month on the personal side and then also $250 a month on the business side, but really on the business consulting side that's that's more really scope of work and what we're really going to do and what the client really needs help with cuz that takes we put a lot of effort and work into that and that takes a lot um, on our side. So that is typically really more on like the 500 a month or above. But we do recognize that we want to increase that fee over time. We just felt like it was a good starting point, And then we eventually are going to have to increase that in order to sustain the growth as a company. So, so I'm just kind of thinking through this a little from the the business math perspective. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> so like 50 million of AUM, 230 households. So I do the math here and average client was just over 200,000 of, of AUM with, um, I'm sure the, you know, the, the usual, like a few much larger clients that drag the average up median usually is lower. We all have a, a positive skew to our, the distribution of our clients. 200 something thousand average client at your fee schedule at, at the time, I guess, for where you were would have been like a two to $3,000 fee per client. And that was it with the caveat that you get them much smaller than that. And there's just not a lot of assets to charge upon if you're going to do work for younger clients. So you shift to a planning model. So base fee of $250 a month is $3,000 a year. So just kind of out of the gate, that's effectively a small fee increase for for the average client, and and really when you then layer a fee schedule, an AUM schedule, that's still 075 percent on top of that for that client. Like that client that was paying you two or three thousand dollars a year is now probably paying you more like four to five thousand dollars a year. Is that does it sound like a fair characterization for the shift? Obviously, some clients that had almost no assets, they just went from like near nothing paying you to $3,000 a year. And I'm sure there were a few at the higher end where this might have even been a fee cut for them because they had big assets and going from 1.25 down to 0.75 was actually a reduction, even with the $3,000 a year planning fee. But is is that kind of what it felt like overall? Like the, the bulk of clients kind of took a a little tick up. Now I'm going to get paid for the planning work. And then a subset of the clients, the lower end got lifted up more because now now you can actually afford to serve them profitably. 
So that that is yes, that is an accurate representation. However, what we did decide to do is we did get grandfather all of our existing clients and we gave them what their current structure is. However, if the new structure benefited them to actually reduce their fee, we would then were obligated obviously to then switch them to the new structure. So we had to go through our client base and see if the new structure would actually benefit them as a shift. And then the clients that technically don't, you know, don't benefit from it would actually have to pay us more. They would technically have to sign a waiver with us to say, okay, I'm actually willing to pay more for the services because it isn't technically in their best interest, which is what we were told by our compliance team and the lawyers. So we, we decided so to you do now. You can't run a new fee schedule that's lower than what your existing clients would pay if they just like fired you and came back cold the next day. If it's a better deal for them, like you got to move them there, basically. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. So, and we've done that with all of our clients, but they, I mean, again, it's up to them if they elect saying, you know what, I'll stay on the current schedule or not. And then we have to have a waiver for them to sign that they've acknowledged that we've explained it to them. We've told them about it. So we, we've, we've definitely transitioned to that point. Now with the current clients, we could force the contract and say, Hey, you know, please sign this. And then, you know, if you don't, you know, thank you so much, you know, kind of that whole cutting and letting them leave. We haven't decided to do that yet. We don't feel like we necessarily need to write this at this point. We do feel like if we can then continue to go on this new schedule that we'll be able to grow enough to be effective, obviously, and profitable. But that doesn't mean that at some point we may have to relook at the current client base and then and say, okay, where are we really at? Can we, you know, obviously, is it okay if you move to this new structure and so on and so forth? So we aren't quite on that stage yet, but... I think that it may or may ha- not happen. Uh, you know, I don't know actually, to be completely honest. So why? So I gotta ask, like, wh- why not? Why not? Right? If the whole discussion, like, I'm, I'm, you know, we're we're trying to get the business to the right points so that we can hire and 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 do the things we want to do for the clients that we want to serve, including just serving some existing clients, and not feel like we're losing money on them because they don't pay us enough because they have needs and we do planning, but their assets aren't big, but their income is fine and they could certainly pay us. Why not move the existing clients? Yeah, that is an excellent question. And I mean, my answer is probably going to be something that doesn't make much business sense, which sometimes I guess I struggle saying it out loud, but it makes sense from the standpoint of just our values and I guess our culture is that we feel the, cl- the current client base allowed us to get to where we are today. And, you know, that isn't on them for them to pay us more because we made the mistake not to have the correct fee structure at the time. Which with that being said, I don't even think that we could have had that fee structure when we first started. So we do feel that they've got us to where we are today and we do feel that we can continue to grow and continue to have them on that fee schedule. And that's just a decision that we've made as as business partners to say, you know what, let's see if we can actually make this work because in all reality, we're not here today without them. And we've just made that decision and it's going to, it will definitely be a little bit harder road than trying to repaper people. But at this point, that's the decision that we've, we've gone with. Is the business change in terms of just what you do for people since, since the firm launched? Yes. uh, Our service has changed significantly and I really, and it's changed quite a bit on the financial planning and the business planning side of things. We've really evolved into, I would say something that's a true planning firm. I, I will say when we first started and opened our doors, we probably weren't. And I think part of that was that it was really relatively new to the three of us. 
you know, I was with a large firm when I first started uh, in northern Wisconsin, and they did planning, and they did a pretty good job. I think we do it differently than they do now, and I was exposed to that, but probably not to a high, high degree. And then when uh, I ended up getting hired with a firm that we were previously with, they also did a little bit of planning, but probably not as much either. It was very focused on investment management and, and more in that realm. And so when we first started the business, we we're like, hey, we really should do this planning. It's an important piece. But we really we were really kind of getting into our own saying, okay, how does this really work? What, what kind of service do we really want to provide? Because we hadn't seen it in practice. And so our planning and our structure is significantly different than where it was. And it is more time intensive because we are big believers in that. If we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. And if, in my opinion, if you're going to do financial planning and do it right, it takes a lot of work. It really does. And, and, and that's, upfront and ongoing? Like what does that planning look like for you? So we have now really taken on, and, and, I, and this is actually from your podcast with Roger Whitney. We have taken the idea and the thought process of agile planning. And so it's continuous and ongoing and it's been extremely successful because I, so I obviously head up our financial planning department and I struggled at the beginning of understanding what financial planning actually was because it's a, it's a very big hype word, but I was like, what is this service? What are people really truly providing? I just don't understand because they're, you know, they're doing all this work and, but it's like, if you really want to do this work, that means you got to take a deep dive into people's lives and understand statements, expenses to really truly give advice. And then I'm going to throw a 30 page you know, document at them that says, Oh, you can potentially retire in 30 years. I'm like, that just doesn't make any sense. Now it's just, it, it just didn't make sense to me. And so eventually I start, I just kind of started slowly understanding that, hey, this is more continuous because people are human and people live lives and life is financial planning and it changes and it changes so fast. And, you know, goalposts change and this changes. And if you're trying to get precise, that goalpost changes and then you say, oh man, I got to go back to the drawing board. So after I you know, listened to Roger, or I think I read his, either it was a blog or I listened to the podcast with him, it just clicked and said, yeah, this is exactly what we're trying to do is we're trying to position our clients. We're trying to position them for the future because I don't know the outcome, right? I've, I'm giving up the control of knowing, hey, this is where you're going to be. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to position you when those decisions come up that you're prepared to make them and make them from a rational perspective, you know, without a scarce mindset and that perspective. But in order to do that type of planning, we had to change our technology, change our processes, go even in more depth. But that depth has created more efficiencies for us to turn around questions quicker. And I think our clients have really, really appreciated it as well. So yeah, that that piece has changed a lot. And it really has allowed us to change as well into the, the firm we are today because we are more planning we're more planning centric than we ever were when we first started. I would say when we first started, we were probably a little bit more leaning on our investment management to kind of get us going because that's how we got paid was through AUM. So that fundamental shift has been very enlightening, I guess. And, and I think it's the right move for us because I, I do feel we are really good on that side and investment management's hard to control. You, you can't control the markets. It's difficult and it's not our bread and butter. There's a reason why, you know, there's mutual funds and ETFs because that's all they do, but that's not all we do. You know, we do a lot more than just that. So it's, it's been a nice shift, but definitely increased our services. <laughs> so I, I, I got to ask then, so you like, you have all these clients who came on board, 
they they bought you and LBW because you had this investment management process you know, for which you charged them <clears throat> uh, uh, an appropriate fee for the the investment management work that you're doing. You have, in your words, added in all this additional financial planning service and work that you're doing that was never part of the deal, was never part of the original commitment, was never part of the original pricing structure. And now you're doing all of this work and you don't want to charge for it. (laughs) Yeah, you know, again, it's a hard look in the mirror. And when you say it like that, yeah, it's, I would say that it's not, in the beginning, you know, part of it, I, I would look at it like this. I would look at it a little bit differently. Maybe this is me trying to rationalize the my thought process. But when we first started, it wasn't that it wasn't part of the process or it wasn't part of the deal. You know, we did tell our clients from the beginning, hey, you essentially have signed us on a retainer for the assets that we manage. So use us, right? You have questions, call us. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's move it. And that really pushed us to get more in front. Because if a lot of our clients would come on and they just wouldn't ask us questions, right? We would be the firefighters, not Smokey the Bear. And I kept telling my clients, hey, I want to be Smokey the Bear. I don't want to be the firefighter. And my dad was a firefighter. I don't want to do that. We really started pushing our clients to come come to us with more and more questions. And that really allowed us to evolve into what we are today from a planning perspective. Because it's like, you know, we started just getting more of that experience of different types of questions and what are we looking at. And it allowed us to get to where we are today. So, you know, with that service, I mean, we, number one, obviously weren't getting paid for what we were doing, but what it did pay us to do is it paid for the experience to experience what was going on and to find where we were really, what we were really good at and what we could become even better at going forward. So again, kind of going back to that ideology was just saying, look, the clients that we've had in the past, they allowed us to find ourselves. They allowed us to push ourselves in different ways. So it's just hard to say, hey, now I'm going to change the game on you. And well, we just understood. But, you know, they, they also got five years of discounts. True. That is true. That is true. Be- because, <laughs> that you've is got true. A, because you've got a fee of what, what it actually you know, costs for you to deliver properly and well today based on your, the restructuring of your fees that they didn't have to pay for five years already. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I will say some of the clients and we've, we try to push every one of our clients that come through the door to utilize their services and, and some haven't taken us up on it and we still continue to push, but you know, that is part of the process. So when we're looking at our full service of planning, there are a few clients out there that just haven't taken the steps to engage with us, even though we've tried. So not all 230 necessarily are going to be underneath that full service spectrum even though we, again, are trying our best to get them to do it, <laughs> are those, which is all different. But I mean, are those going to be good fit clients for you in the long run if you're increasingly going kind of planning centric and what you're doing? No. And I think that that is another, I, I think that's the next step in our process is what you're saying isn't wrong. That's what I think the hardest part for it is, is that rationalization or no realization, not rationalization, but it's a realization that you're not wrong. From a business perspective, what you're saying is 100% correct. And I don't know that as a firm, we're there yet. I think that maybe we will get there where we really start looking at it from that perspective. But I just don't know that we're, we're ready to look at that in the mirror. And I know that sounds hard or not not logical from a business perspective, but I think that we will eventually get there where, yes, you know, those clients may not be the right fit going forward. 
and then how we handle that and how we go about it, you know, we'll have to decide on that. But I will say that we haven't taken that step as we're trying to work on other transition parts, but you're probably right. You know, it's, it's going to be, it's tough. It's just very hard. You know, <laughs> I know, maybe people who are listening can, can empathize with, but oh, I, I, I absolutely, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I apologize. I'm, I'm, I'm beating you up a, t- a tiny bit. No, on that's this. okay. That's okay. Uh, I just, cause again, in, in sort of the context of the, the discussion, like what got you here won't, won't get you there. Right. Like what got you here is, you know, we'll do anything for, for the, the clients that we can get in because we need to get clients in the door and revenue in the door and we need to get growing and, you know, when we're going to service them as, uh, as well as we can to hold on to them because that's just, that's what you have to do from starting from zero in, in the business to get it going. But then at some point that becomes a limiting factor for the business, which I think you were already finding by saying we, we literally cannot continue on the current path. That's why you altered the fee schedule and sort of changed the trajectory of your path. But the secondary challenge is even if you try to change the path going forward, it is sort of literally speaking, very difficult to do so with 230 clients of baggage that you're lugging on your back. And and like not to again, not not to just try to beat you up about it all the way through. Like th- this is a common thing I see across advisors across the industry right that that like loyalty that we get to our initial clients i i I think there's probably a version of this that's kind of the an effect of the imposter syndrome like hey okay deep down the truth is i'm really not sure i knew what the heck i was doing when i started this business and got going they took a chance on me and worked with me and paid me and i'm not even sure if i was actually that good in the early years but all right but like i'm awesome now like it's, it's all good we're good moving forward and i didn't i didn't i didn't hurt anybody too bad i think for some of us deep down there's almost a feeling like i i probably overcharged those initial clients because I was still learning, I was still getting experience, I was still getting going, and I feel this loyalty that they were willing to pay me when I might not have been up to snuff. So now I want to keep them, even though they may not be up to snuff, in in the other direction. And as you you said, like then we start trying to find ways to rationalize it. You know, they took a chance on us, they got us here. You know, it's our values to take care of our clients, so we can't change them now. But at the end of the day, sort of the, the undercurrent of all of it is, as you've noted, is, but the firm's also just in a really different place. And what you actually do for your clients today is so different than what it was when they signed on and 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 agreed to the original fee schedule that it's okay to acknowledge just, hey, we're in a different place. We do different things for our clients than we used to. And if you really like that, we'd love to continue working with you at this new fee schedule that properly recognizes the value of the work that we do. And if not, we will totally help make sure that you find another advisor that's a good fit. And in fact, we've you know procured this list of three of them who are all willing to take the call and work with you. And we've already vetted them to make sure they're good. Yeah. And it's, you're, you're right. And I think too, even I, I like the, the, obviously the, the point of the podcast is, you know, what got you here isn't going to get you there. And I, even when we were speaking a little bit before with the iceberg effect is that, you know, part of why I was excited to jump on this podcast is to talk about that qualitative because it's so, I think it's so easy to sit there and say, yeah, I'm just going to go and repaper this client. But the reality of it is I have to sit down and talk to that client face to face and do it. And 
that is, I think, difficult to do when we know probably very well because we understand their finances that they may not be able to afford it. And I think that is a struggle that's just even bigger than our client base because we've had individuals recently that have called us and we've had to tell them, look, you just aren't the right fit. And unfortunately, we can't provide it. And their response is, I'm just so frustrated that I can't get this type of advice because I don't have enough. And the, and the reality is, and what we've come to realize is that unfortunately, to get a high planning service, it's expensive and it's hard because it's a lot of work. And it's not for everybody, even though the majority of the United States needs financial literacy. I mean, it's, it's just, it's evident. And, and so to say, have to tell someone sitting across the table from them, sorry, you're not wealthy enough or don't have enough money. It just goes against so much of our, of the grain that it's, it's difficult. But then on the same side, I sit there and I, and I hear what you're saying. And I'm like, oh, it makes it, it's, you're right. It's, it's coming to the just realization that yes, it has to happen and it will probably have to happen at some point. But man, it is not easy to, it's easier said than done and to make those steps moving forward. And I think that even some of our shift in business is that it's gotten to the point where we had to do it. Like you said, it's not a question of, you know, should we do it? And, you know, we don't really have to. It's like, no, no, we won't survive if we don't do this. And then I think that also is probably a negative with probably some advisors is that we get ourselves to the point where we have to force change where we should have been forcing change before we had to do it. And, and I think that was a, potentially a fault of ours is we should have done this a while ago. This shouldn't have been forced on us, but we kind of forced it upon ourselves. But as you know, like be, because these conversations are awkward and challenging and difficult, particularly because you, you know there will be clients who are going to say no because they can't afford the new fee and some of them need help. And you know they're not going to be able to say yes. You can't afford because they can't afford the fee, right? It's it's so easy for us to you know to to rationalize, to come up with workarounds, to to come up with excuses. But like that's that's harsher and judgier than I mean it to to sound like. Just we we come up with ways to not put ourselves in the situation to have to have those unpleasant conversations, which to me is why it's so much about like then don't make an unpleasant conversation. Lynn, go in and say, like, here's what's going to happen with all these clients. One of two things is going to happen. They're going to decide they're so va- that we're so valuable that they're still going to come up and pay the new fee, or they're going to decide that they can't afford it, and I already have three super awesome advisors who are going to take great care of them who are a better fit at the fee level that they can afford. So the only question is, are they going to have me as an awesome advisor? Are they going to have someone else as an awesome advisor? And, you know, bummer a little if it's not, me, like I you know, I want to work with all the clients and have all the people, but like you can't serve everyone. And so if you frame the decision in your head as, look, they're gonna work with an awesome advisor going forward no matter what. It just might not be me. Because I went and found, you know, one to three other advisors in my area that are appropriate for them that I can refer them out to if they say no, like I know they're gonna get taken care of now. You're not sending them out to the wolves. You're just transitioning them to whatever advisor is the good fit for them. Yeah, which is probably a conversation that we, again, I <laughs> have to have sooner than later. And we have, but it's, it's a touchy situation. I mean, it's a, t- to be, if I'm going to be honest, it's a touchy situation and it is, you know, it's, it's difficult, but you know, you, with being a business owner and we, I mean, even with our own business clients, we talk about is you have to make some of those hard decisions. The best example I can give is sometimes when speaking to restaurant owners, 
you know, they talk about how to cut their costs, but they're unwilling to cut their food costs and go with different quality of food because they're passionate about what they make, but they're unwilling to then up their prices to pay for that because it's difficult. And is it marketable? And I think we're in a very similar situation where it's, it's this, this ideology that we have, that we have to, I don't want to say give up because I don't think we'll ever give it up, but make the realization that, Hey, look, if we're going to be successful business and continue to grow, we, we have to make these fundamental changes and it's tar- It's hard. And, and I think there's just a piece that, you know, if you want to be a service business, if you want to be in the business of serving people, of serving clients that, you know, you, you, you can't serve others and like, you can't serve others sustainably until you create a situation where you will be able to sustain your, your service to others. You know, in, in my early days, all the way back in, in college, I was actually a, an EMT. I don't know if I've even shared that on the podcast before, uh, but like er, early days, like this was the this was the '90s and the era of the TV show ER, and so everybody, including me, wanted to be an emergency room doctor, and so I was a pre med student in college and became an EMT and was like interning and shadowing at all the hospital emergency rooms in town, kind of going that direction of of potentially going into emergency medicine, and and I still remember when I was in my original classes for becoming an EMT, we had this fantastic instructor. His name was Paul Marcolini. Still remember Paul very clearly with a, a big bushy beard. And you know, the Paul had been a, a, an EMT for basically forever. Uh, his wife was an EMT. Like they just, they lived that world. And, and the thing that Paul absolutely hammered, hammered into our class was you are more important than anybody else. And it was not meant to like put everybody up on a pedestal and make them have big heads. It was kind of this recognition that I think he had seen for teaching a zillion different EMS classes that, you know, I think EMS and medicine increasingly like financial planning is, is, is a helping profession. And the problem with helpers is if you don't put yourself first, it's very easy to put yourself last and put your your patient to your client first. And if you do that in, well, if you do that in financial planning, you can create a business that has wonderful service and it drowns in a lack of profitability and inability to grow and an inability even to serve its existing clients because it's losing money. In, in the medical context and particularly the EMS context, uh, like you can get yourself killed. I mean, you can put yourself in a dangerous situation that you can't extricate yourself from. And so like Paul would just hammer into us, you are more important than anybody else and you have to take care of yourself first. Uh, like right down to, it's like, I don't care how scary the scene is when you when you pull up and like there can be people bleeding out and dying on the ground. You will wait, you will stop and make a three-point turn to back your ambulance rig into its parking space so that if ever there's a moment of danger, you can run into your rig and get out of there immediately. It's like, I don't care what's happening and how dire the situation looks for the people. You will take the time to back into the parking space in a giant ambulance so that you can beat a path out of there very quickly if you have to, and then pray it never matters. And still 20 years later to this day, I am incapable of parking in a parking space without backing into it now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you can get out. Just really, yeah, like it's not really that dangerous at the local mall anymore, but I'm like incapable of not backing into a parking space now because Paul so drilled that lesson into us. And, and I really do think it's a metaphor that applies in 
in our context well uh, as well you know if you're if you're learning to be a lifeguard you have to learn how to ap- approach people who are drowning or they will drag you down and drown you if you are scuba diving and you have a buddy who is who's drowning because their tank is failing they will grab the mask off your face because we do completely irrational things when we're desperate and you will take someone else down with you and so there are all these situations where when you're a helper and especially when you're a helper if you don't take the opportunities to take care of yourself first, it is so easy to take care of yourself last. And, and the people you are helping really can drag you down with them. And they don't do it because they're mean or, or, or trying to do anything harmful for you. They're in their own tough spot. And when we're desperate, we'll kind of grab on anything we can and potentially drag it down with us. And you have to be really careful not to put yourself in that position, which to me gets very into these dynamics of, what do you do when you want to help clients with financial planning and and they can't pay you enough to make it actually work for your business and be able to take care of yourself and your team? Yeah, and the analogy is is excellent, and it, you're right. And like I like I mentioned earlier, you know, my dad was a firefighter, you know, paramedic, and <laughs> it's the same thing, right? You got to help yourself before, because if you're if you you know if you don't help yourself, then how are you ever going to help anybody else? Because you may be dead, <laughs> and it it's it is that analogy, and I think. Part of it is just understanding that, you know, it's, it would be easy for me again to rationalize that, that analogy saying, well, of course that's going to be the case because you're talking about life and death. Right. But in, but the reality of it is, you're not actually really at risk of like getting shot (laughs) in the street because you said no to a financial planning client who had a who had a tough budgeting situation. Yeah. Exactly, but the reality is is that is true. And I think to, you know, sit back and just admit to yourself that it's the truth. We just, you know, we have to do it and it's been in it's I just think it's fascinating obviously being more on the behavioral side myself. I love behavioral economics and behavioral finance is that, you know, that qualitative is so powerful. It's so powerful that it will make you sometimes make decisions that aren't rational. It's it's interesting. I mean, we experience it ourselves and we tell clients that all the time. I and mean, we are just as apt to make those type of decisions just like you are. And And to me, I think the limiting factor is this sticking point that we get of thinking, I'm the only one who can help this client. I'm the only one who can save this client. So I have to do it myself. And and not recognizing, like, yeah, again, I get it. There are other people out there who will not do right by the client. We've all seen those situations. But like, if that's the fear, okay, then don't throw them out on the streets to to find their own way. Like, find them a new home, find them a new space, find them a new advisor. Like, it it is true, pretty much across the spectrum. I don't care where you are in the in the like in the advisory business food chain. Your A client is someone else's C client. And your C client is someone else's A client. And so, like, you don't have to keep them forever as the only person who can help them even as a C. Like, there is someone out there who will put them up on an even higher pedestal because it's their A client, even though it's your C client, and and probably serve them better. Well, and, and probably provide them with the, the, the advice that they're maybe looking for too. Cause going through this process, I mean, I, I, as you are, I mean, I love the industry in, in a, geeky way and looking at different business models and understanding now that we, I kind of understand where we are and what we want to achieve, but then looking at other business models like Vanguard, you know, rolling out 
their financial CFP type of work or betterment or personal capital. You know, there's a lot of this robo advising and now you can talk to a CFP for an hour. And I think, like you said, I think we have an, we potentially could have an ego of saying, oh, I'm the only one that can help. And I think that you need this service, but our clients may not want that service. <laughs> you know, as much as I think they need it, they'd be like, I don't really want it. I really want this. And I just want to talk to someone who's going to give me I don't want to say basic, but rule of thumb advice or advice on certain things, which what we're saying is we want to take an in-depth look and really make customized advice, right? And that customization does cost more. And that's why Vanguard can roll out a little bit cheaper route because they're just probably not going to go as in-depth because that's not the model they've created. And there is a fit for that. There's a market for that. Absolutely. And I mean, you look at you look at pretty much anything up and down the spectrum and uh, of any industry and like... There are standardized cookie cutter solutions at one price point, and there are, you know, custom or bespoke solutions at the other end of the price point. And like, you make your own decision off of some combination of what do you want and what can you afford? Yeah, yeah. And and for, and you're right, you know, it's it's looking to make sure that we put them in a position where they can be continue to be successful as well. And and it is up to us too, is, is more of that consumer education. I mean, we talk a lot about it in-house, the consumer education within the financial world is just extremely poor. And we do feel like we are trying to be advocates to that of saying, that's why no matter what, even to this day, and I don't think we'll ever change this. Everyone ever, if anyone ever wanted to talk to us, we're answering the phone, right? And we'll give them 30 minutes to an hour just to explain, hey, this is what you should be looking for. This is what you really need to do. That's worth our time because we are big believers that a lot of the general public aren't educated well enough about what our industry is all about and what to look for because they just don't know. And, you know, it's, it's, it is doing that as well as finding others that potentially can help and probably could help them better and giving up that, Oh, I can, I'm the only one that can do it, which is again, more on a qualitative and, you know, self-reflective side, which is difficult. It can, it's a difficult thing to just get over and move on. So, so talk to us more about this, planning process that you're building and changing into you've kind of framed it around roger whitney's agile financial planning like you know uh, legacy clients aside like i'm a brand new client i'm coming into lbw today i say like heard you got some cool financial planning i want me some financial planning uh let's do this financial planning thing so so what happens like how does this planning process work so every client that walks in our door today goes through our planning process. So we're not going to bring anybody on anymore. If they, maybe if I shouldn't say, never say never. If there was a certain client that just wanted some of our in-house investment management, maybe we would do that. But that would be a very select individual understanding very select expectations. So that is probably not going to happen as much as it probably did in the past. But now if we bring on a client that really wants, you know, LBW from the planning side, everyone goes through our planning process. And the part of our planning process is what comes in is the first thing that we do, regardless of wealth or where they're at, is we, number one, get them set up on our on um, our financial planning software, which we do use eMoney, which I, we've been very happy with eMoney. We actually switched over from MoneyGuide Pro to eMoney about two years ago. So Money Guide Pro is interesting from a goals-based perspective. Like, yes, I do think they probably are the leader when it comes to goals-based. And I know eMoney's trying to kind of get there as well in a, in a certain way with their new fundamental planning. But I, it just didn't fit the structure that I wanted. It didn't fit how we planned. 
So like, I could create these different structures and it was really good for post retirees or like right before retiring, it could be really powerful. I mean, and it allowed to do some different types of modeling, but it wasn't as in depth that we wanted or as customized from a cash flow perspective. And that's really more of just how we've decided to do our practice is really through that more cash flow based system. And so it just wasn't working. And then we'd get these younger clients and I'd be like, I'm not even going to use this because it it doesn't really make any sense. And so we then made the shift over to eMoney. And one of the biggest things that eMoney has provided for us is the data aggregation system. Now, every aggregation system is not perfect. You know, I mean, you have Cuvo and you have, you know, buy all accounts, which got, you know, acquired by Morningstar and all that. But overall, being able to bring in that data and bring in that information has been extremely helpful because the first thing that we do for clients is we do an expense analysis. It's not a budgeting tool. We're not going through and saying, this is what you need to do. What we're doing is we're saying, what is really going on in the household currently from a cash flow perspective? We have them link their accounts and then we will go through and we will categorize the transactions for them because no client wants to actually go and do that. And it's extremely important for us. So we'll go through, we'll categorize it and see what's going on. And then we'll start doing the process of going through the goals because typically what happens is clients come in and they would say, Hey, I want to retire. Okay. Well, that's the first, first off, it's a wrong question to ask. It's what do you want retirement to look like? Because we are big believers in wealth is relative and it, it just matters on what's coming in. And I always tell clients, look, we boil it down to a simple, equa- simple equation. What is your income minus your expenses? What do you have left over? You positive or you're negative? If you're positive, what can we do with that money? If you're negative, how do we need to stop the bleeding? And, and then from there, once we understand those fundamental levels of that base, then we can start talking about, hey, I want to do a $1.3 million remodel. Great. How are we going to access that capital? You know, or I have all these stock options or let's look at this and, and start going through the actual planning process. And so we'll walk them through an expense analysis and through the expense analysis, that's when we start developing realistic and attainable goals. Because what I would, what happened to me is I would start having clients come to us and they'll say, Hey, I want to do this big remodel or I want to do this. And they would tell me like, okay, well, how much are you spending? And what is your income? And Oh, it sounds like we have, you know, $2,000 or $3,000 or $5,000 of free cash flow. Great. We can hit this goal in this amount of time. This is what you do. Then they'd come back and be like, oh, I can't do that. I'm like, well, what do you mean you can't do it? <laughs> like, you told me that this is what your expenses were and, you know, this is your pay stub and this doesn't make sense. And that's why I now just trust but verify. Oh, because like they, they said they were saving whatever, $4,000 a month. And then you formulated the plan and they actually like, sat down for a moment and looked at their own accounts like, you know, we've been saying we're saving $4,000 a month, but over the six, last six months, our account only went up by 2000 total. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Should have been and 20 so was, plus. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, building a plan off of that, it's building on a house of cards. And if your first thing is wrong, everything else is going to be wrong. And so we, we go through that exercise to then start developing realistic goals. And I will say, regardless of income structure, it is, you know, it's, it's important. You know, the best way I can give an example is a client that recently came on is we went through the same exercise. Their income level is extremely high and they want to do a few different things. And they came to me and said, Hey, look, I want to do some private equity investments. I said, okay, well, let's look at that. Well, because I knew exactly what they were trying to achieve, the reality of what they're trying to do with a big remodel and different things. I went back to him and said, look, yes, you do have the ability to potentially invest X amount into this. However, Here's where your private equity stands. And we really are trying to get cash flow for this, 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 and this. And you don't have the cash flow to support it. 
and I think you're already over, you know, overweighted in this certain area, you can't do it. And he's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Because where people miss is that they have all this income stream coming in, but then they forget that they also are supporting about just as high of expenses because lifestyle inflation is as real as it can be. And that is part of our process. So what we've done is we've taken that and then we start positioning our clients. And it's again, positioning them for when things happen. Because we recognize that our clients are going to say, oh, I want to retire in 30 years. But then they have kids and then those kids go to college and then they don't go to college and then this happens or there's a death in the family. And there's so much that can happen within someone's life is I just started saying, I'm done trying to predict 30 years out. All I know is I can be consistent in the next 12, 24 to 36 months. That's where I really want to plan and then take into consideration of these long-term goals and make sure that we're getting towards them, but being, but positioning them to be able to shift if their values and things change, which I feel has been very powerful for, for our clients. So, so talk to me a little bit more about how some of this gets, I guess, reflected or done in the, in the, in the planning, I guess the planning software or the planning process. So I, I get like, they come on board. We we link their accounts. We do the you know we do the expense analysis. We'll help them with the expense categorization to get a handle on where the money is going. But when you start talking about things like we're going to have a big focus on just goals and milestones over the next 12, 24, 36 months, and not the thirty year projection. When I feel like all the planning software tools at the end of the day, like they are first and foremost glorified retirement calculators, and then everything else builds off of the you know 30 years to retirement and 30 plus years in retirement how are you doing 12 24 36 month planning does this just peel out of e-money and start going into like spreadsheets or just written plans and things you do separately are you actually doing some of this in e-money like what is the what does this look like so it depends on the client if we're going to be using e-money or if we're going to be diving into more um, our spreadsheets. So we definitely have spreadsheets. So even with our expense analysis, e-money is great to have the transactions, see the data, but we usually dump that data out and then we put it into our own spreadsheet because then we'll slice and dice it because there will be things that come through or like, well, why did this $10,000 check, check come in? Or there was this massive expense that was a check. We don't know what this is. And then to be able to show, because we really want to create normalized income and normalized expenses and then be able to, because then it just creates more realistic, actual Normalized numbers. meaning what? Uh, like looking all of it as a percentage of total. So you're not saying you're not saying you're spending, you know, $17,000 on eating out in restaurants, you're spending, you know, 4% or 8% or 12% of your budget on uh, dining out in restaurants? It would be more of, for example, let's say someone had a big tax refund in 2019, right? We're going to exclude that. We're going to say, look, we're not going to count on your tax refund. And, or, well, you know, there was a gift from grandma and it was 20 grand. Well, that's not going to happen consistently, but it's going to throw your numbers off if we include it. Because what we're trying to find out is what's really happening month to month. And then if you do get grandma's $20,000 check, we're not planning for it. So that truly is a bonus. And then we can start allocating that somewhere else. Okay. So you're, so so you're, you're sort of normalizing out the one-off and one-time events to get down to here's really your recurring household cash flows. So we do that. We do, so we'll bring the client in. We'll, we'll do that. We'll then create these goals and a plan. And then from there, what we'll do is we want to review it every six months 
because things change. And if it's a quick, hey, look, you're you know, you're tracking on the right route, or look, your you know expenses moved up, your expenses moved down, and then get them on a six month schedule, and then see how they're projecting towards some of these goals in the next 12, 24, and 36 months. And then once we position them to a point, then we start saying, okay, look, we've uh, we've actually have an emergency fund now. Great. We actually, you know, have saved up for these short-term expenses. Great. Now let's start maxing out the 401k. Now let's start looking at this private equity. Now let's start looking at this really big house remodel in the next couple of years. Now let's start looking at college planning. Because, you know, we get a lot of people that will come in and say, oh, I'm just going to dump all my money into the 401k, but then they're running a deficit on cash flow. And that's like, well, if you just run yourself into debt, that money that you saved is going to have to then pay the debt off, you know, when you're in retirement. So this doesn't make any sense either. So it's adjusting them and positioning them to get in a different mindset. And then reviewing that every six months allows us to track it on a consistent basis, more of that agile, because, you know, you know, clients, you know, have a baby and then their expenses change. And then we can actually say, hey, this is where you were the last 12 months to six months. This new baby's coming. That means your expenses are going to increase anywhere from, you know, $1,200 to $1,500. Look, we had this free cash flow. That means we're only going to have $300. That means we have to shift these goals. And we really calibrate them to a pretty high degree. And then there's other things that come in with that. So a lot of our new clients, I think, you know, I just recently in 2018 went through the CPWA and I tell a lot of the clients, hey, it's this is technically for high net worth, but where it's misrepresented is that a lot of new firms, tech firms especially, are giving executive compensation packages to these younger individuals. So then it's looking at those as well as saying, look, you have non-qualified stock options. How should we look at that? What are we going to consider it? Or you know, we have someone at a health tech firm, you have a lot of incentive stock options. What does that look like? Now you have RSUs, you know, how should we look at that? What are you? And so then it's tying everything else together, but making sure that we've positioned them with everything else, because that all doesn't matter unless we have an emergency fund and we're positioned well, then those decisions become a lot easier over time. But it's definitely usually a pretty big change for most clients that come through it. And that includes insurance, looking at insurance, homeowners, you know, life, we go through all that process and we step them through making sure they're they're facilitating all of that as well. So just a, it sounds to me like a, a very just cash flow intensive planning process and and not not cash flow intensive as we've historically I think talked about cash flow based financial planning in the industry which is sort of like the the old school nava plan we're going to have a line for every single cash flow that's going to occur over the next 67 years of accumulation and decumulation we're going to project out like the detailed tax projections of every single one of those years and every single cash inflow and outflow in every single year like it's it's not it's not the long term and future detailed cash flow projections it's the literally like cash flow today like literally today like where is the where is the actual cash flowing in and out of your household with a big focus there on are we capturing it can we categorize it can we reflect it back to the clients can we make sure we normalize it to pull out the one time stuff so we really understand what's happening with the with the cash flow in another house uh, in in and out of their household, and then just all the conversations that then come from, you know, do you have a surplus? What are you doing with the surplus? Do you have a deficit? How are you fixing the deficit? And continuously attuning that as people's expenses and income shift over time. 
Yeah, and, and that allows us to, because what it, it, even though it's a lot of upfront work, but what it's allowed us to do is now when clients call us and they ask us questions, because what will come up and what we found is that clients will then say, hey, what, 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 what if I want to do, buy this new house or do this new remodel or what happens, you know, if I do want to retire at 55 instead of not 55, we can turn around those questions a lot quicker because we understand what's really going on, right? If you really want to make some of those calls or at least give advice on it, you have to know those numbers because I've, and I've just found that clients, most clients, when we show them intuitively, they understand where they're at. But if they, if you ask them pre, cause we always will do this as like a small experiment. It's like, what do you think you're spending? And they'll say, oh, this, and then we'll come back. And most of the time, I'd say at least 90% of the time, people are at least a thousand to $2,000 off at least. And that's a big difference over 30 years. And, a, in the, and it doesn't even matter. Over one year. <laughs> it uh, adds up quick over 30. <laughs> yeah, because because clients, I mean, if you're looking at where people are paying today, you have credit cards, debit cards, no one's really using cash. And there's you just don't realize how it adds up. And it's that ancillary expense. It's not the mortgage, the bills. Everyone knows what they're paying on that. But it's all these other things that then add up that they're like, oh, and then we show them. And they're like, yeah, that feels right. You know, that's your pro. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's like, okay, well, now that we're breaking even, this whole idea of you trying to do the X, Y, and Z, it just doesn't make sense. You know, we need to fix this problem first before we can even fix the next problem. And it goes even towards retirees. I, I, no matter what, a retiree, we're doing the expense analysis because if I'm going to do any projection for them over the next 20 years in retirement, I better know that that expense number is accurate. Because if, again, if I'm off one to $2,000, that changes the advice. It changes the whole game, your withdrawal rate, you know, all of that. And that means I can give a more accurate representation where I feel like the industry has gone of just let you tell me what, and then I'll just give you the numbers and give you suggestions. Like I just have a really, really hard time with that. So one of the things I know you have sort of raised is the concern about this as you're shifting into the more planning centric process is, is just kind of the, 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 now the sustainability and scalability of the planning process, as, as you, as you sort of noted earlier, like you, when we started, we were mostly kind of planning investment centric. We did some planning stuff, but not as much. This is all new. This is more time intensive. This is more labor intensive. So good news, charging planning fee, (laughs) bad news still takes a lot of time. So so do you do you even have a sense like how how much time does it take you to go through doing all this stuff now like did you try to figure out the time and set the fee did you set the fee and try to figure out the time or just kind of have like here's what we want to do and here's what we think we can charge and and let's see if we can make these work in harmony together the question uh, opens up a can of worms on a lot of different levels so once we started figuring out this planning and and understand that we're shifting this planning fee we started to realize very quickly that our business model, and again, our economic engine was going to shift. And so I've, I've always said this, but we never really put into practice is that as an advisory firm, I'm a big believer that when you're in business, you're in the business for something. And people sometimes misrepresent what they're in the business of, because we're in the business of time management, right? At the end of the day, if we are more efficient with our time, we become more profitable because that's, that's really what it comes down to because we're an hours based company. And, but the problem was, is that we were never tracking our hours because we didn't have to. 
And so finally, starting in November, and we should have been doing this a long time ago, I started having everyone track their hours and really specifically on the financial planning process, because you're exactly right. I didn't know exactly how long each part of the process was really taking, which means I couldn't model out and project how, you know, how many clients, number one, we could have, depending on the number of bucket of hours we have as a firm. So I started looking the firm as a bucket of hours. So, you know, there's, if you did 2080, which is roughly 40 hours a week for, you know, full-time employee, you times that, you know, you know, you get that, that's the amount of hours one employee technically can have. Let's say you, you know, you up that to 50 hours a week or whatever you think maybe a salaried employee would take. And then you start figuring out, well, you start realizing that the scarcity is time, which means that if my one client's going to take me, for example, 30 hours a year, well, then I can only have so many clients until I need to hire someone else to get to hire more hours to then scale up and get more clients. So when we started tracking it down to how many hours we were spending, it, it, it was very interesting. I think, again, intuitively, like I talked to my clients, we kind of understood because before we actually tracked it, we kind of whiteboarded it out saying, this is roughly what, how much time we think it's taking. And we did figure that breaking it down, you know, for example, you know, dat, data gathering takes about an hour. So we do a pretty much a meeting with someone where we actually sit down and get all the information because it's extremely important for us to get the information, the correct information. So we do not put it onto the client to say, hey, you get us information because we've tried that and it was a terrible experience. So now we actually sit down and help clients gather the info and set them up on our software. So that will take that takes an hour. Sometimes there's one or two of us in it because it's easier with two people in the meeting to like if someone's gathering data to you know have conversation. So it could take up to two hours of the firm. Then we're looking at the next process of actually doing the expense analysis. That takes anywhere from two to four to sometimes six hours, because if depending on the amount of transactions, which is very labor intensive, and then that What's also taking all of that that time. Like just- so, categorizing transactions is a big deal. I mean, that would probably take us anywhere from two to four hours, and then after that, it's any about an hour, maybe an hour and a half to two to like go through and then analyze it. Because, you know, sometimes people are moving money from one account to the other, and it's a little bit more confusing if we have to reach back out to the client and ask a few questions. So that usually takes some time. And then we usually set up the e-money portal. So we're, you know, we're doing a little bit more analysis, or if we know that we need a little bit more analysis before that meeting, because they really want to talk about a specific goal or a specific item. And then when we present, we've gotten our meetings down to about an hour and a half. Typically, there are two people in those meetings. So again, you're looking at a total of three hours per, to present. And then for notes and follow-up that usually comes out of that meeting, you're looking at another an additional two hours as well. So that would be the process. And that's just the planning process. And we want to try to replicate that every six months. You would do that whole thing every six months, like f- fresh expense analysis, fresh expense categorization, Yes. The data gathering won't be a part of that process, but it is another fresh expense analysis. The analysis would just be depending on where we are with their goals and like just where the the client is in that situation. And then usually, you know, from a client service perspective, we're at least touching that client uh, once a quarter. So essentially we're touching the client four times a year, two big meetings, and then two, hey, how's things are going? Is there anything we can, you know, help you with? Is there anything that's changed in the, you know, recent weeks? And then from there, also, if the clients do come up with any questions just between those two timeframes, then we'll try to handle that as well. So we figured that, roughly speaking, a a full service when it comes to client service planning 
on that side of things are probably about 25 to 30 hours per client yeah, per year. Yeah, it's just kind of looking like data gatherings or two hours because it's two people times one. Your expense analysis work can be up to six hours. So you're at eight. Your presentation is three hours jointly. So you're at 11. Follow-ups another two hours. So you're at 13. Do it twice a year. You're at 26. So yeah, like right in that 25 to 30 hours a year range. Yep. And so then, and then from there, what we were looking at is saying, okay, how do we price it? Right. That was the next question is, do we look at hours and then price? So here was the difficult part when it comes to pricing is, you know, we're providing this service. And as you mentioned, you know, I love this podcast because I get to hear what other people are doing and it's been extremely beneficial to understand that because I think in our industry, what's missed is, you know, we're providing this service, but I don't know what it's like relative to everyone else. I don't know if it's a lot, if it's a little, if it's good, if it's bad, you know, you really kind of go on what you think is best (laughs) and is it comparable? So when people say, look, you know, I'm charging a minimum fee of $20,000 a year. It's like, okay, well, what are you actually doing? Like, what is entire, like, what does that really truly mean? And the other issue that we were having with compliance is that we would say, hey, we want to charge, you know, X amount of dollars. And they'd be like, the regulators aren't going to do that. They're going to come at you and they're going to say, you know, you're gouging clients because they only have $100,000 of assets under management and you're charging them $10,000 for a planning fee. And it's like, and they're going to say that's, you know, 2% or 3% of X, Y, and Z. So we sit back and we look at it as like, okay, but we know other firms that may gather someone at a $5 million at, you know, 1% or $5 million at, you know, 0.75. And they're generating more than the fee we're getting. And they may be getting nothing other than a passive index portfolio, but they don't even have to get, they won't even get double looked at. They won't even get checked because it's 0.75, which is an okay fee based off the assets they're managing. So the, the way that fee structures have been presented from a regulation standpoint, it's like, well, how are we supposed to get paid? And I mean, we're doing work. And it's like, but I have to make sure that I show all of my work, but then this other firm, just because they are gathering large amount of assets, they, they don't. And, and it's, it's so it's, I think that's the hard part is number one saying from a regulation standpoint, what is, what are regulators going to, you know, shun away or say, no, you can't do that. And then also what's marketable. And then what do we really think, what do we need to make sure that we can continue to grow? So that's, we felt that the $3,000 plus, depending on if there's any AUM that comes with it at the lower fee is sustainable now. But again, like I mentioned earlier, we, we do believe that we're going to have to increase our costs, you know, over like pretty quickly over time to be able to scale it appropriately and then making sure that we're finding the right clientele. So we definitely think that, you know, it's a, still a good deal for the client. You know, we they think it's not, we, we're they're a little underpriced, we feel, but, you know, we want to make sure that it's been a new step. So it's kind of a, an experiment test run. And we've gotten really good. We've gotten good response from it so far. We've actually are bringing new client, new clients onto the new contract since we just launched it, which is fantastic, but it's definitely going to have to change now that we understand how long it really takes and then how much, you know, an employee is going to cost and all of that. We can really start modeling out where we're at. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's interesting to me when I just think of this of like, can we, can we, you know, can we build it up and scale it from here? You know, as you said, like sort of traditional employee has about 2000 working hours in a year, you know, just 40 hours a week times 50, 50 weeks a year with, with two weeks for vacation. No, not, not every hour of every day is 
productive or client facing or or nor can it be. So you figure like maybe if they're really productive, like 75% of their time is productive to clients, particularly if like if you know if you're imagining not someone in a business development and management role, just like we're gonna give you a whole bunch of these clients with all this planning work. You gotta do it for a whole bunch of them. So like maybe 75% of their time is productive. Yeah, we actually broke that down as well per individual who's touching the client when it comes to the planning process. And we do have an employee, uh, Darren, our, one of our team members who's really assists me on the, and he's a financial planning analyst. And we figured that about six hours of his day, well, five to six hours a day is where he's really spending a majority of that time. And then for even for me, for example, where I'm really leading the efforts, I have about four hours of my day that has been dedicated towards a lot of the work, which goes back to reviewing Darren's work, doing the analysis, some analysis, and then presenting a lot. So because I have, I do a lot of operations and marketing and there's, you know, I have to, we have to run the business as well. And so it is, it is looking at it from that. We have looked at it from that standpoint too, is if we hire, now I know what hours I have and then where I should be allocating those hours for those. Well, and just what it can add up to really. Like if, if you know, if fifteen hundred of the two thousand hours are productive, and it takes thirty hours per client, then like the person can do fifty clients. And if it's three thousand dollars of revenue per client on the planning fees, it's one hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars. You maybe it goes up to two hundred thousand dollars of gross revenue if uh, you know if they've got some assets they've got and they're adding over time. So your your revenue cl- per client will lift over time. So on the one end, like <clears throat> that to me is like. Yeah, like that's that's not broken in in sort of putting it in 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 air quotes. Like, I, you know, I I can. There are planners out there, I think, who would very happily take less than one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars if all they had to do was just sit there and be an awesome financial planner for fifty clients that the firm's going to give them to do this to do this planning process. It's even worth noting that just. Traditional advisory firm margins, as you grow and gain scale, are usually in the twenty to thirty percent range. So, a normal advisory firm should only make twenty or thirty thousand dollars off of this of net profit. Like it should cost you one hundred and twenty thousand dollars to service one hundred and fifty thousand of revenue. Not just in terms of the advisor, but advisor overhead, staff, rent, all of it. Like you got to put all of it in that bucket to be to be fair. But like that, that actually still does seem economically feasible, at least if you can get the clients in in the first place. And then you get to all the ways that you can manage the cost. So as you said, like we can split the labor, right? Is there a subset of these tasks I can give to a lower cost employee instead? So the total cost to support it comes down. Can I, uh, do I need to raise the fees, uh, right? Do I need to charge more to, to make this economically aligned? Or, or just can I reduce the hours? Like it strikes me, I mean, the you, there's not much you can do to really change the time it takes to do a data gathering meeting because you can you can only ask the client the question so quickly uh, and have them answer. There, you know, presentations, presentation. You know, what strikes me at this is just almost fifty percent of your process for the year is is basically expense categorization, expense analysis, expense categorization. And we've I have battled with that. And and it's it's because to your point where it's it takes so much time, but the then on the flip side we've been looking at it and we're trying and we've gotten more efficient at it. It's looking at trying to look at other potential aggregators and it's you have the problem pretty much across the board. 
right? It, these aggregators sound fun and cool and awesome, but at the end of the day, they're not a perfect system and that you do have to, you know, manage them and do some things. And eMoney has some cool tools where you can set rules and different things where it makes it easier going forward and cuts some of that time out. But in general, we've looked at it too of saying, maybe we just don't, you know, maybe it's too much to do the expense analysis, but the, the, the pr- productivity and the value we've seen for us and for the client has just been, it's been fundamental and it's been a big, big help and a big shift. So it's, it is trying to figure out, and that is really what we're moving forward to is kind of talking about, you know, what got you here, isn't going to get you there is, you know, us tracking our time, us understanding really how long this takes us understanding our levers. Like you're saying is, do we increase, do we decrease service or do we increase fees? That fog beforehand is starting to lift and we're starting to see this clarity of being like, okay, this is what we need to do in order to be, to move forward. And part of that is also process. Like you said, is how can we improve our processes or what can we do to make this better or more economical? And I don't think until really recently in the last few months, we had the data or the know or the knowing of saying this is what you got to track it and measure it so you can even figure out where you have a problem or or even just whether you have a problem. Again, I've 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 seen a lot of firms are like, geez, all this planning work is really labor intensive, and I don't know if we can do it profitably. And then and then we kind of go through an exercise like this, and it's like, well, you know, your your advisor makes whatever eighty thousand dollars or hundred thousand dollars. They can service you know enough clients to generate three hundred thousand dollars of revenue. You realize like if you're paying them one hundred to service three hundred, like you're actually doing really well as a business. <laughs> That's going just fine. I mean, I get it. You got rent and staff and overhead and other things, so like you only make a portion of the dollars that's left. But like, this is actually profitable for you for what you're doing now. It may not feel as profitable as your as your core business or what I find is for a lot of firms like it's not as profitable as when you're filling up your own client base, right? There's this phenomenon. You, when you start from scratch, your first hundred clients, if they bring in, you know, $300,000 of revenue, like you, you, you get all 300. It's your clients. It's paid to you. You get those dollars directly minus maybe just a little bit of overhead costs, but there's usually not a ton when you're, when you're getting going, you don't have all those capacity limitations yet. When you get the second hundred clients, you add like another $300,000 of revenue, but now I need to hire another planner. I need to hire support staff for them. I need to expand my office. I need more rent. I got to pay more software licensing fees. I add all these different costs in. Uh, maybe I do okay on the profit margin and I make like a 20% profit margin. So my first 300000 of revenue, I made most of the three hundred. My second 300000 of revenue, I maybe make sixty. Yeah. And we actually experienced that exact thing. You know, when our first, when we first went on or when we first started the business, I mean, our profit margin, you know, again, not including our distributions. So if you included that, maybe it's not looking as, as clear, but if you were to exclude our distributions or the owner's compensation, I mean, we were probably in that 50% range or even in the 60% range because we kept our costs pretty lean. Yeah. And, and for some solo advisors that star on their own, I mean, I, I've seen firms that are in the 70 or 80%. A range once you get over those initial overhead costs, like when you have no clients and you pay for e money, like you're at you know negative three thousand dollars. Once you get your first set of clients, you get a little bit going. You get these really huge positive margins, at least before owners' compensation, and and then you start adding more clients. 
and then you start adding more clients and our cost went, you know, and, and that's where I think too, which has been slightly nice is we've built out the structure. So, I mean, where we are with office space, we have the ability to expand, you know, we did bring on obviously uh, our team member, Darren, as well as we have our office assistant and director of marketing, which is um, Ying and she's been fantastic. So like we've built in a lot of these costs and now we feel like we can actually kind of move forward because before, you know, our office space was, it was cheap, you know, and it, and you know, with cheap comes different struggles. And, you know, with technology, we've increased our technology because we've been very big on knowing that, hey, what we were, when we first started the business, we took a step back and said, where do we really want to allocate capital? Where do we think the true return on investment and technology and infrastructure were the two things that we felt we wanted to put money. And I think infrastructure also included human capital. We recognize that our, our business will survive with the people that we bring on, you know? And so, now we're at a position today where we feel like we can add more, a little bit like more people based off of, again, the hours and tracking that we can then grow that up and then scale it up to then bring on someone else to then help for that next growth phase. But we were definitely weren't there. So our margins have gone down to more of that, again, that 30 to 40% range. And we recognize they may go down even further as we scale a business up. Obviously not, we don't want to go down too much, but overall it's it's kind of getting there so it's we've definitely seen that transition and nathaniel who really helps us with our books and when he's looking at the analysis because that's what he does is he said he keeps telling us it's okay guys like our profitability is going down but we were running so lean that this was inevitable you know so we definitely yeah we've experienced that for sure so in turn help me understand though just the this expense categorization like what at the end of the day is so time consuming that the software tools are uh, like apparently still sucking at that it takes more time i mean i like i can make the whole remainder of the plan in less time than it's taking you to do the expense categorization like i'm not trying to beat you up about that i i i understand the power of the conversation but like what is what is the software gap here is it is it basically like literally the categorization or is it something else about how just you like to present and show and illustrate budgets and household cash flow that they don't do? So you you've got to pull all the data out and put it in your own spreadsheets to show what you want to show. Like, is this a presentation problem, or is this just an actual like expense categorization data problem? It literally is. It's a it's a literal data categorization problem. And I mean, if you've used Mint or if you used any other type of software that aggregates data, the problem is, and what I, I don't know this from a, like a technical standpoint, but I would assume where the, the gap is in a technology is that credit cards, debit cards, or even banks, they don't have unified data. So it's when the system tries to go through, and I believe on the back end and categorize itself, but it only can do so much. Now, with machine learning and you know art- artificial intelligence and all that and big data getting worked on, I'm, a, I'm surprised that there hasn't been something that's... Well, and, and even just eMoney, I think, has more than 50,000 advisors now. So like, if the average advisor has I don't know, 20 clients that do anything to track their cash flow and categorize it, like there's a million people who have categorized these expenses in eMoney. Like... After like the first thousand of them categorize an expense a certain way, can can we just make that the default and and then it should be like default categorized properly for pretty much everyone else? I mean, I get it. Sometimes 
certain people have their own screwy categories and there's always wild cards like the 47 line items from Amazon <laughs> you're trying to figure out like was this the toilet paper or uh, uh, computer parts or like whatever else or books or whatever else is you order on Amazon but uh, like I, I just I've always wondered like why can't we just flat out crowdsource this amongst the zillion people that already use e-money and do this yeah and that is we've darren and i have talked about that quite a bit is it's it's just amazing that there isn't technology that can you know do that like you said you know the data points that are there i mean i was i was writing i think i wrote an article about this like literally seven years ago (laughs) in in 2013 it was like when will there finally be a good pfm like personal financial management solution like mint for advisors that categorizes expenses properly well, and and I, I would assume that it, I, I the only thing is I would assume that the data is it's what I've noticed is it's just not unified. Like Amazon comes across in a million different ways, and and then you know then if people want to do subcategories, but there's got to be a way where you can have high level categories that are the same every time, and then you can then select if you want to do subcategories. And the thing is with where I think with a lot of e money and how we may use it differently, and I again don't know if how people are using it is we've tried to say, hey, client, can you please go through your transactions and make sure they're clean? Because the data doesn't mean anything unless it's cleaned up. And they don't do it because it takes a long time to sit through and go. And and then it's like, well, now we can't do what we're doing. So in order to speed the process up, we've just taken on the role and said, okay, we'll just do it for you because then we know that it will get done and then we can provide the information we need to provide. But it does, it does make me wonder again, like, okay, then, you know, can, well, either A, can e-money pull, pull expenses from how other people are categorizing? Or I swear, I mean, I've seen this even, even, I, you know, I, I'm a Mint user myself and have for tracking household expenses for years. And I'm still amazed sometimes that, like, Mint can't figure out how to categorize something. I'm like, if you literally just Google the name of the business, like it's the first hit on Google and it says what it is. So like, can we teach Mint to use Google (laughs) to find out that like this was a hair salon and like it's where we get our hair cut and you can just put it in that category and move on. Like between that and and crowdsourcing what other advisors do, I mean, I get the data is, is messy, but you know, after the first like, 50 million data points, I would think a data company could figure out how to how to categorize this a little more. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to be blithe to what I'm sure are some employees at eMoney that work very hard on this, but but as you're saying, like when when the expense categorization takes more time than the entire remainder of the plan and the aggregate, like someone at eMoney and Yodley and the rest are missing the ball on the advisor business efficiency opportunity. And I would say this, and I, so, I mean, I am kind of a geek when it comes to the the software side of things within our industry, just because I I really enjoy it. And it's just amazing that how so far behind we are when it comes to planning software and some of the stuff. And the big issue is, and I was talking with another individual that's creating a new planning software is these are developed for the enterprise firms. Like you have Pershing that buys MoneyGuide Pro and they're just using it for insurance sales. Like it, it, they're just completely removing it. Or eMoney is built for these big organizations, but you really don't have these software that like, what I don't understand is how no one's taken a step back and said, what is financial planning? Financial planning is project planning. And, but the, the eMoney is not a project planning software. It's a glorified retirement projection calculator 
and it's like, but if you really want to do planning, there's so much more to it with it's module based or not. I mean, it's, there's just, it's so far removed from the reality of if you want to do, in my opinion, actual planning. I've thought for a while that, you know, as much as we talk about like fintech competition and, and, you know, sort of the, the risks of, of disruption in new categories of, of software, like I have, I have thought for a while now, like I, I actually think financial planning software itself is the category that is most prone to be completely disrupted. Like, I mean, e, uh, like Money Guy Pro just revolutionized the space 20 years ago when everything was like 60 years of detailed cash flow projections and Money Guy Pro came in and was like, how about we just focus on the cash flows to the goals that matter for the for the client plan and like not go into all the other minutiae in detail and, you know, and took a ton of the market and e-money has had an amazing run, I think, over the past 10 years saying, no, 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 the, the future is about these portals and a data and account aggregation and tracking not just the assets, but the liabilities and the cash flow as well. Like they've done some work around that, but you know, like they're still mostly glorified retirement projection calculators. I'm waiting for the software of the 2020s that's actually built to facilitate ongoing planning. And not just to make a plan because I get paid to implement the plan at the end. Like not trying to knock plan and plan implementation, but just like, you know, planning clients to me are 30-year relationships. And it seems like the planning software is basically built to be awesome in the first three months and and, and useless in the last 29 and a half years. And I, I think that they were built to be sales tactics, honestly. I mean, in my opinion, it's, oh, look, I'm going to put well, this Well, that was the roots. I mean, if yeah. you... If you go back to the early days of planning software, like everybody was paid on commission to implement the plan at the end. <laughs> like that that was the that was the business model when planning software was originated. Yeah, and planning software was created to cross sell, right? Well, let me let me just see what you have and then I'm going to cross sell you on different products. It's so much easier than just having one product you try to sell to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and so I mean that's where I I just like I would love to sit down and say, hey, you know, this is what I think it can be. And I would, I mean, if I had the, I don't have the time or capacity, but to actually create a software that makes sense and in, in how I see planning. And maybe I'm, you know, the only one out there that has this one idea, but it, it's, it's, I, I mean, I, my brother, for example, is a general contractor and we talk a lot about our businesses and just how they're similar. And we are the exact same business. He's just building a house, right? He has subs, he's working with different things, but he talks about it from a project planning or a project management standpoint. And not once have I heard people say, oh, I'm project planning for my client. Cause that's what we're doing. I'm building a house, but it's just a financial plan. And there's just as many intricacies as making sure the floors are right to, you know, but planning software doesn't even have the ability to track like a project planning. And that's why I loved when Roger Whitney came up with, hey, this is agile. I'm like, yes, this is because it's exactly what it is. It's he and made, the he distinction it. is like once agile planning came along, software platforms like Jira appear to facilitate an agile planning process. So, or an, an agile software planning process. So yeah, it's an interesting question. Like if if Roger's agile financial planning comes on, this sort of, you know, continuous improvement, continuous incremental progression planning approach takes hold, like it opens the door for the next generation of planning software that will actually facilitate it. Yeah, which and then would be interesting too, because you know, even talking about it from a the standpoint of like designations as CFP, which I held my CFP as well. I went through the curriculum, it's all great. But what's interesting about the CFP is if you really start breaking down how they want you to put together their plan, 
right? What do they talk about? Cash flow analysis. They talk about debt analysis. And you try to compare that and throw that into a planning software. Good luck. Good luck. So you're, you're seeing the curriculum and the software aren't even matching. They're not even together. And then you expect me to do a 40 page report where it's all spreadsheets. Like there's no way. And it's static and I, you know, and it's static. And, and that's the problem too, is like with software, we can become dynamic because people's lives are dynamic. They're not static and it will change. And I don't want to have to go back and redo every single thing. Once a client comes to me and says, you know what, we were going to do that remodel, but you know, it's too much or yeah, we're, we're pulling the trigger. We decided not to, but now we are, you know, that's, those are fundamental changes that I have to change because the plan's now changed. And it's, so it's, it's a, it's a struggle that I, I'm passionate about. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so, you know, so everybody who's listening, you know, contact eMoney and tell them to listen to, to this, this and, <laughs> and, and yeah. fix this because we clearly need it fixed. And, and I, Tim, and I know you are not the only one with this pain point at all. Yeah. Yeah. Which is nice to hear. Cause again, I, I, I that's why I like listening to your podcast. Cause then I can listen. I'm like, Oh, thank you. Someone else is out there with the same struggles. <laughs> it's very nice. So, so as you look at this journey and, and you know, what you build and what you're trying to transition towards, what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? <sighs> the most surprised me the most you know, growing up, my I, I grew up in a small business family. So my dad was a tile setter. Um, my brother obviously is now a general contractor. He took over my dad's business. And my uncles are in the finished supply. So I grew up in this entrepreneurial small business world. And so I always had the dream of just owning my own business. I mean, that was, I think out of the three part, my, you know, me and my three partners, I'm probably the only one that really probably wanted to do it. We felt we started the business really out of necessity that you know, we had a different idea. We wanted to approach the industry just differently than what we had seen. And, you know, starting the business, I think the biggest surprise to me is honestly how humbling it is. You know, you come in with these, you know, these ideas and these, what you feel is right or wrong. And if you're not willing to really look at yourself in the mirror and look at your business, I mean, this is part of the conversation that we just, you know, we've had today is, I'm just surprised on how much it made me grow up in a in a very, very fast manner and allowed me to kind of see the world in a very different lens now. And I, I think as well as, you know, owning the business and being able to be really connect with clients, uh, I've I've been surprised where I've, I feel, I would say this is more of a surprising just within the industry in itself is that the amount of people that we get to meet and see from different walks of life has just been the most rewarding part of the job. I mean, and, and sitting down, I mean, I, I would love to give the example of a client of ours is originally from India and we you know we go to her house and she makes this traditional Indian tea and tells us about the culture. And I'm getting that kind of experience just from doing my job and to take a step back and just say, wow, like that is been extremely rewarding and surprising. I just didn't, I never really looked at it like that. And I think part of starting the business and seeing life, you know, trying to appreciate life in different ways has allowed me to kind of self-reflect and say, wow, this is actually really neat and I shouldn't take advantage of it. You know, I'm, you know, it's been very rewarding to just, you know, get to know people in, in that kind of way. And we have to get to know them on a deep level to really do appropriate planning for them. So that's, that's been good. And then the business side is it's just been, you know, people always come to us and say, oh, I want to start my business. And, you know, my 
sometimes my answer is good luck. <laughs> you know, that's going to be fun. <laughs> you know, just, just wait. Like I like your enthusiasm, but make sure you have the, the ability to, you know, go through the ups and the downs. <laughs> my, I think, you know, I was told in an analogy that you feel like you're a dog in a pond and the water's rippling just enough and you can see the other side of the shoreline and you're just trying to tread water to get over there. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of the feeling. So that's, but I think that was a surprise is just the sheer difficulty and then understanding why people are where they are. And then it, it's opened my eyes, I think, overall to the industry, right? And, and how it really functions because owning the business has forced us to look at every aspect because you have to regulation, compliance, tech software, processes. And that's been really surprising on the learning curve of all of that, which has been rewarding for me. I like that stuff. So it's, it's uh, been pretty fascinating. But overall, it's, it's been a great journey and I don't know that I would change it, but I don't know that I'd go back and want to do it all over again, <laughs> say the, to say the least. But I think that's what a lot of people would say who who've, are entrepreneurs or business owners. So what was the low point for you on the journey? The low point, you know, I think, you know, everyone here at the firm works really, really hard. And I think we, you know, as a firm, you know, we talked about this in um, our, our semi-annual meeting we had in January and we, you know, kind of were just reflecting on the year. And I think that, you know, as we've approached this inflection point, I think we got burnt out and burnt out, not that we, you know, our service had dipped or anything like that, but I think just personally that everyone was just like, whoa, this is becoming a lot. And in order to really, you know, take a step back and say, you know, how do we, you know, how do we fix this? Where are we really going? Who do we really want to be? Is I don't want to say it was a low point necessarily, but it was definitely a, just, it was a, it was a really a, a quick, Hey, let's look in the mirror. And obviously that's why I reached out to you to say, Hey, what are we looking at? Because it's, we wanted to figure out how to really truly make this work, but we, we know we can't do it on our own, right? We only have so much information. What what precipitated that in in the first place? Like what what got you to the point of saying like, geez, geez, guys, I, th- I think we're gonna have to do this differently. <laughs> I think we got to change something. I would say it would go back to your analogy is that what we were doing before wasn't going to work going forward. And I think it became very evident in a very quick manner that how we were approaching the firm, our you know our goals were misaligned because it was what we were doing in the past. And, you know, we had to realize that we needed to shed the past to then kind of move forward to the future. And that's why I would say it was kind of that low point because that's not an easy like bullet to bite, right? It's, you have to, it's difficult. To be fair, not to keep beating you up, but you haven't entirely bitten the bullet of shedding the past because you grandfathered all the clients. (laughs) You are correct. But it feels a lot better than where we were. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a game plan. And, and I mean, it doesn't matter. Just like, there's a plan, right? I mean, I think this is part of why financial planning is so powerful for clients as well. Like, even, even if you're in the spot that is not ideally where you want to be and you're trying to work towards something together, having a plan about where you're going, how, how you're going to get there is really powerful. Yes, yes. And that's... I think that was the inflection point though, was that just like you said, it, what we were doing in the past just wasn't going to work. And it's a hard, and you said, you're right. We haven't quite bitten the bullet, but we've gone, we, like you said, we have a plan going forward and that fog is starting to lift and we're really coming into our own, right? We now recognize what we really are good at. 
then now we can have, you know, being a planner myself, it's now we have, we have that idea, that overall lens, and now we can work back and say, this is how we can now get to where we need to be. We didn't have that in the past. And that's provided a lot of comfort personally. And I think it would, I would probably speak on all of our behalfs that as a firm that it's, it's been very, it's changed the tone of the firm internally. Just like, yeah, you know what? We, now we know where we're going. This is great. Let's start actually having a true objectives. And so it's been nice. So I know part of the, just sort of the challenging reality of, of, of building an advisory firm is that like we, we all kind of have to learn these lessons for ourselves at some point, right? We just don't internalize them the same way until we live through them. Life has a funny way of teaching you lessons that way. But I am wondering, like, is there, like, what do you know now that you wish you could go tell you from five years ago when you were getting started? You know, I think about that actually quite a bit. And I think about it from the standpoint of, could have we done things, could we've done things differently to be in a different position? And you know, it's hard to say that I would change the past because the past has obviously gotten to where we are today. And I know that's kind of a cop out, but it, the only thing that I would say that I would learn is being more, it, it being, trying to figure out who we are in a little bit more of a quicker manner. I just don't know that we would have done it without the way we kind of went about it. And it's, it, I guess if I, if someone were to come to me and said, Hey, I want to start, you know, my own IRA and this is what I'm looking to do. I would definitely walk them through the different models, have them understand the industry, not what they're trying to do, but the industry. And then where do they fit within that industry? And I wish I would have known that when we first started is where can we really fit? And what's the reality of where we could fit from experience to marketing, to branding, to like understanding Am I competing with Vanguard or am I competing with this local RIA or because I, you know, our industry just doesn't have that kind of information necessarily out there and that like what model structures or what you're trying to achieve, that would have been really nice to know earlier on. I think we may have gotten to where we are today, maybe a little bit quicker, but that would probably be, yeah. If I were to tell someone, you know, if someone were coming to me, that's probably what I would really sit down and have them work through that exercise. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means different things to, to different people, changes for us as our businesses change. So you know, you've already had the success building from, from scratch to 50 million, which is an incredible achievement unto itself. But now looking at next stage, next stage for the business and, and kind of retooling the business and the model and the services and what you're doing. But I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? So I'm going to, I'll answer that, I guess, on my level. And I think the firm level and this, this, this question, actually listen to your podcast. I've thought about this question quite a bit because <laughs> it's everyone like, oh, what, what, how would I define success? And I think it might, that what's, what's crazy about it is that there's all of this change and there are certain things that don't change. And in my eyes, what hasn't changed since we started this firm is how I would define success. And to be honest, the way that I would define success is that if I can walk away from this firm and I can have every client that we touched and every employee that we had the privilege to hire to say, I'm so glad I met LBW, that's how I would define success. Because the way that I look at that is in order to achieve that goal, even though it's very simplistic and pretty high level, 
that means that if my employees were happy, I did a good job for when it comes to management and that they were successful within the firm, you know, or with my clients, that means we service them appropriately. We charge them appropriately. Like all the pieces that need to get to that degree have to happen. So they're all just residual effects to us just striving to make sure that when the client sits, like walks away or we walk away, they say, I'm just so glad I met you guys. That really would be the biggest honor or success that I think I could think of because that means I know I did everything else right. So that's how I would probably define it at the end of the day going forward. I, I love it. I love it. It's, it's, the, it's the positive impact and legacy in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, I, and it's, it's funny because that has not changed. I think when we opened the firm, we've talked about that as a firm and we haven't gotten away from that. You know, there are some values and ideals that we have not strayed from, but the processes behind those ideals have maybe changed. And I think that we continue to strive on that level is just trying to make sure we are impacting anybody we have the privilege to touch. I love it. Well, thank you, Tim, so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.